1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today, we'll be talking with James Carl Nelson about his new book, I Will Hold, the story of United States Marine Corps legend Clifton B. Cates, from below wood to victory in the Great War. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. I'm now the author of three World War One books, somehow, just by
0: happenstance. My first book was Remains of Company D, which is about my grandfather's unit of the 1st Division, followed by five lieutenants, which followed uh, five Harvard grads through the war uh, and to their, their ultimate fates. Uh, otherwise, I'm originally from Chicago. I uh, went to the University of Minnesota, studied journalism. I've been a working journalist for 33 years, and uh, just have really uh, enjoyed segueing into writing these uh, military histories that
1: I do. Okay. And so you got into the... Business, if you will, of, of writing these military histories from that desire to explore some, uh, your, your grandfather's background?
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. He lived to be 101, but he was shot and severely wounded at Soissons on July 19, 1918. As just a small story of him laying over uh, night on the ground, uh, mort- almost mortally wounded, being picked up by a couple of colonial uh, the stretcher bearers and brought to aid and made it back and lived another 75 years. And I never really fleshed it out with him when he was alive. Uh, but after he died in 1993, for some reason, it was got this bug to, to what what really was that story, that little nugget he used to tell. What, what was the context of that? And one day I got a muster roll from the First Division Museum in uh, uh, Wheaton, Illinois, and his name was on it. It was uh, um, missing since recent operations with all these other names surrounding it. And it just really intrigued me, and I kind of delved in and started researching uh, the men of his company, which is Company D, 28th Infantry, uh, U.S. First Division.
1: So you started writing these books about uh, combat in World War I. What led you to the story of Clinton Cates?
0: <laughs> Basically, uh, in both books, for some of my first books, uh, uh, The Remains of Company D and Five Lieutenants, I had covered portions of the Battle of Soissons from the First Division's perspective. Um, it was a huge counteroffensive that launched on uh, July eighteenth, 1918, meant to uh, slice through this huge hanging pocket that the Germans had created during their advance south to the Marne. And then 1st uh, Division was on the north. The Moroccans were in the middle. And the 2nd Division, which included the 4th Brigade, which was Marines, around the south. So I wrote a proposal for my agent uh, just saying, how about a standalone bat- uh, book about the Battle of Soissons? It's a four-day affair. Um, and he's an author himself, uh, Jim Hornfisher, has done a number of naval uh, books from World War II, including uh, Neptune's Inferno, which covered Guadalcanal, and he recognized the name Clifton Cates and said, well, what about a biography, of this guy? Because uh, he was aware that Cates had become a commandant to the Marine Corps. Um, so a quick check showed that he had uh, his papers. Cates had papers at the Quantico uh, Marine Archives and a uh, short trip over there, gathered his uh, material. It was originally supposed to be a full-blown life uh, biography, but it turned out to be fortuitous that uh, his World War II uh, records and, and, uh, and after albeit had been sent out to be digitalized. So I waited and waited and waited. And <laughs> finally, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I waited for like a year and a half, two years, I swear to God. And, uh, and finally, I just rewrote the proposal. And I just said, let's just make it World War I. And, uh, that, and actually, in terms of action, uh, you know, he was in the thick of combat as a second lieutenant uh, and a captain. You know, once he was with the uh, Marines in World War II, he was a colonel and a general. So really the dramatic combat stuff wasn't uh, World War One. So it worked out well.
1: Okay, So um, tell us something about Cates' uh, background. He, uh, he uh, grew up uh, post-Civil uh, War America. What, what was his early life like? Well, I was born in uh,
0: 1893, and he was born uh, at his uh, family's place uh, appropriately called Kate's Landing on the Mississippi River in far northwest Tennessee, um, near the bend of Cairo, and there had earthquakes over the years. And his uh, family basically were, were not human farmers, but, uh, you know, they were had a sizable, you could call it a plantation, I guess, and they also had a general store. Uh, river boats would stop there and unload or load supplies. Uh, they grew cotton. So he grew up, uh, it wasn't a genteel southern uh type of uh upbringing but he was he was they were well off uh but he spent most of his childhood uh avoiding schoolwork and running <laughs> around in the <laughs> running around in the woods he was really a man of action from from the get go he he didn't really take to the rigidity of sitting at a desk in a school he he went to a country schoolhouse first um but eventually Uh, He was consumed with the woods and and sort of, uh, I I liken it to a Tom Sawyer upbringing, Huck Finn, uh, on the Mississippi River. He ultimately got sent to the Missouri Military Academy, which is right across the river. Um, And I'm not sure, uh, I don't really know how that came about. If They felt he needed um, some disciplining uh, for his studies and just in general. uh, Because there wasn't really much of a military lineage uh, in the Cates family. Um, And uh, then he went on to the University of Tennessee, studied law, and uh, graduated uh, in uh, 1916. Um, and he was actually set on taking the bar exams uh, when the war was declared on April 6, 1917, and he was in Knoxville. And uh, he asked uh, – he saw the, the son of uh, the university pres- – uh, pre- uh, son of the president of the university strolling by and asked him if his dad had gotten any uh, inquiries about uh, uh, recruiting people from the U. And uh, the guy said, yeah, he got an inquiry from the Marines, the Marine Corps. And Kate slicked him and said, the Marine Corps, what's that? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was, and that's that's the thing about the Marines. I mean, we think of the Marines now. Everybody knows what the Marines are. But back then, it was a more obscure force. They were attached to the Navy, and they served uh, in dribs and drabs, two and three here, eight there. Think of Master and Commander, they had a contingent of Marines, like eight or ten guys who would go up into the sails and fire the weapons at another ship. so it was really uh, in a small force really It was about fifteen thousand men spread across the world, uh, really uh, charged with protecting American corporate ins- uh, interests in a lot of uh, pl- a lot of places with fighting what they called the banana wars in Nicaragua or Haiti, uh, also protecting legations such as in China. Uh, So when war broke out, uh, there was, say, 15,000. That was soon raised to 18,000. But ironically, when the commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, George Barnett, offered the Marine service to uh, John Pershing in the American Expeditionary Force, he was rebuffed. They told him, you know, go talk to the Navy. We don't have any use for you. Um, (laughs) But Barnett was well-connected through his wife, politically, and he was able... uh, to finally get acquiescence for the Marines to join the fight. Um, also, they increased the number of uh, recruits uh, or the size of the force to about 31,000. And they embarked on the, uh, the Marines wanted the best and brightest. I mean, uh, the, there was a draft going on at the time, uh, <laughs> but it was all volunteer. And the Marines went out on uh, various campuses across the nation looking for the best and brightest. And Right here in uh, Minnesota, the University of Minnesota. They got 500 young men to sign up at one time, and they filled out two companies in the 5th and 6th Regiment. Um, so they, they they regarded themselves as a, an elite force, uh, even then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but World War One was really what made the reputation at the birth of the modern
1: Corps, I would say. That's one of the things that stands out in your book, is that it, you, you're, that it was a very funny moment reading that in the book when he is like the Marine Corps, what's that? And it really points to the degree to which Cates is there at the founding of the legend. He participates in 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 the founding of that Marine Corps legend. The things, the battles for which we know the Corps for, like uh, below Wood, and 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 uh, New Cargan, and 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 then you know the, it, going on into World War II with the wars, the battles in the South Pacific, that he is there as part of that and in, in a sense his biography especially the, the the part that you focus on here is the birth not so much of the marine corps but the marine corps as we know it today yeah <clears> of <throat> the modern corps definitely um yeah i mean he, he's he parallels that development
0: you know he uh he uh w- enlisted and became part of a an officer's candidate in the marines reserve took a test uh was sent to paris island as many you know young recruits were a brutal place off of the coast of South Carolina, Um, and then they were building another huge encampment at Quantico. We all know Quantico, Virginia now, uh, for the Marines to train at. It was shipped there, and that's where basically the uh, 6th Regiment was put together. as a brand new regiment. Uh, The 5th had already gone across in June 1917 with uh, most of the 1st Division, and they raised, uh, you know, regiments about 3,000 men. Um, Cates was one of the last ones to be assigned to a company which was the 96th company of the second battalion and it turned out to be not coincidentally the unit that took the most casualties of any american unit in the war um they were just in the thick of uh, all the battles like you
1: mentioned Bella Wood, soissons blancmont and in the argonne mm-hmm. and yet your book uh, uh you're describing uh Cates's, uh training at, at paris island specific, especially especially quantico it's not just about him, because he also uh, is, you know, he meets a lot of these men that they're serving with. And it's a very colorful group. Yeah, it really is.
0: Uh, you know, there there are men from all over the place. Uh, and like I said, a lot of intelligent young men uh, pick, the officers. Mainly came from, uh, uh, you know, Virginia Military Institute or, or these kind of places. Uh, and they were smart young guys. Uh, all eager beavers to get out and uh, get over to France and start fighting. Uh, But they also had some colorful older Marines who'd been in the service for quite a while, had been around the world, and they were the ones who actually schooled these young officers uh, in so many aspects of uh, what it was to be a a Marine. Um, They had the gunny sergeants uh, and that. There was and, like,
1: yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, I was, was going to say the, 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 one of the anecdotes I was thinking of is when uh, the, uh, the 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 red light district in uh, near Quantico oh. was cleaned out. <laughs> oh it was, yeah, mention that story as an, an example. That is uncultful. a funny story.
0: And yeah, that, they were that, they, were, uh, they were building building Quantico from the ground up basically, so they had thousands of workmen there, and uh, that attracted a number of ladies of the night uh, for their services, and finally the uh, commandant of Quantico wanted to get rid of him. So uh, he sent this young uh, uh, officer down there, William Wharton, who was the officer of the day. He said, go down there and uh, clean that, clean him out. Put him on a train and get him out of here. And one of the gunnies, just as a joke, had one of the ladies come up and kiss Wharton uh, affectionately uh, before she got on the train. And the red-faced Wharton was just, uh, just uh, beside himself. <laughs> and, and then the commandant's like, how did you know that woman? You know, that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> so he had protested very much for his own honor. Yeah, part of me was wondering the degree to which that was not just a matter of you know having fun, but also the 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 old salt who is yeah, it's a bit of hazing. Definitely. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, welcome to the core. <laughs> so yeah,
0: um, and there was another instance when they were about to leave. The second Pot- I was about to leave uh, for France the night before. Uh, all the officers got together uh, in the barracks and started drinking. in a big party. And they had the, uh, it was in January, so there was a, there was a fire going. And uh, one of them at some point decided he uh, wanted to see what would happen if you threw a bullet into the uh, stove. And of course, what happened was it went off. And so they started just throwing all these bullets there. And uh, <laughs> Wharton, it was Wharton again, comes running over. And he's like, You have to stop this. You're drunk. Stop. And they take him, they tie him to the bed, and then they poured liquor down his throat. And <laughs> he leaves and then goes gets like this tough gunny sergeant. And who we, they cower they cower before. The, him they listen to. You know, they finally <laughs> broke up the party. And uh, but Wharton had the last laugh. He got to get him up at like five o'clock in the morning when they're all hung over to start uh, in training for uh, France.
1: So they leave uh, from New York. Harbor in January of 1918, and they cross. And as you mentioned, for some of them, this is the their first time at sea, which is kind of ironic considering that they're in the Marine Corps. And Mm many of them find that the you know being at sea is is not when they're at their best. Right. But then they get to France, and 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 they begin this process of preparing for service at the Western Front. Right. Well.
0: Uh, The 5th Marines had been sent sort of all over France to work uh, really boring details at uh, railroad depots, this kind of stuff, uh, the previous June. The 6th Regiment, however, when it landed, it was trained uh, directly for the Vosges area. um, And they began the process, the slow process of getting equipped and getting a little their feet wet in the trenches. It was a quiet area. Uh, but just, you know, they get an idea of what it's like to live in the trenches. And uh, by degrees, they start coming into contact with the uh, Germans uh, who are across no man's land from them. Firefights erupt, shellings. Uh, so, you know, that was uh, very common in World War One. Is sort of like they would uh, sort of just initiate troops into these trench or into these areas where it wasn't – you wouldn't expect a full-scale assault by the Germans. But – there was going to be some activity. There was going to be some gas. There was going to be uh, artillery shelling. You know, machine guns. Um, so uh, the six Marines started to get their feet wet uh, in the spring of uh, 1918.
1: Now the situation in which they found themselves was unlike the type of combat for which they've been preparing. Could you explain for our listeners a bit what warfare, what combat was like? during World War I, and how the Americans and, 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 the, and the Marines in particular uh, approached uh, facing trench warfare? Well, you know, famously there had been a stalemate since uh, the, the fall of
0: 1914 between the uh, Allies and the Germans and their Allies, uh, the uh, Austro-Hungarians. Um, and through the, the ensuing years, breakthroughs were attempted, uh, but uh, never Achieved anything? I mean, famously, uh, the, I think the British lost 40,000 men on the first day of the Somme battle in 1916. They thought they could just bombard the German trenches for a week or a month, and then send men over. But the Germans were down below, 30, 40 feet below. They just climbed back up, manned their machine guns, and just mowed them down in lines. So this went on and on. Mm-hmm. And Americans, being what they are, you know, John Pershing especially, uh, and the Marine Corps uh they they just they it's like they didn't understand what the problem was you know they just thought when we get over there we're going to do a big breakthrough our divisions are going to be bigger working as one and we're just going to break through uh the, this trench stalemate and win this war and uh and get out of here you know uh the marines in particular uh sort of poo-pooed the the, uh, the power of the machine gun which really of course w- had, had dominated the war um there was Really no answer for well well sighted machine guns uh, so they believed in mass rifle power, and the marines in fact stressed uh, marksmanship very much, and so they were all good shots. Uh, but the Marines at Bellow Wood would find out uh, in their first taste of real combat that uh, just you know walking across a wheat field towards a fortified position is going to get you in a lot of trouble real fast yeah. um, they They found that out on uh, June 6, 1918. The Germans had launched this this massive offensive on May 27th. They were streaming south. They're trying to draw the uh, French from their uh, positions further to the east, uh, draw them down, and then they wanted in the north to attack the British and push them into the sea. Anyway, the Marines were sent to halt this drive um, at at a place that was Wood, which was a royal hunting little uh, copse of woods, about a mile long, half a mile deep, um, and uh, that—that's when they first really encountered the Germans in force. Um, they got there about June first, uh, and sort of just—it was—it was, it was a or what it was. They just kind of waited. The French were filtering through, surrendering, throwing their weapons down, saying, "You know, the Germans are coming. Get out of here, crazy Americans." um but they held their ground. The, the Americans did. And uh, unfortunately, uh, they didn't believe that the Germans had entered the bellow wood. So they just let it sit for a while. But, but in fact, the Germans had infiltrated in depth and it set up uh, machine gun nests everywhere. It's a very rocky, rugged place. And so when the Americans finally did attack uh, on the morning of June 6th, 1918, uh, they were mowed down. Uh, it was the 5th Regiment, two, bat- two battalions of the 5th Regiment went in on the left. And they just, they got slaughtered, basically, uh, stymied, they had to go to ground. And then uh, they, later in the afternoon, they tried a more concerted effort on the left in the center with the Battalion of the Six Marines, and then Cliff Cates and the 96th Company uh, on the right was to take the town of Bresch, uh, which, which was a key uh, pl- uh, site because uh, you could entulate, uh the woods from there. Um, so at 5 o'clock... This concerted push across the field went on, and uh, to varying degrees of success, uh, the 6th Regiment uh, Battalion just got barely a foothold in the southern portion of the woods. Uh, Again, on the left, hardly anybody got into the woods, and a lot of them died trying. Uh, And Cliff Cates and his company went across this uh, 800-yard wide field under full view of the Germans at this village of Beresh, and... Immediately, we're caught in a swarm of machine gun bullets and artillery rounds. Uh, Cliff sort of imagines somebody sort of w- waiting before a rainstorm, sort of bent over, takes a bullet off his helmet and uh, creates this huge dent in it. He gets knocked out, and he says when he came to, he didn't know how long it had been, but his first thought was to run away. So that was his first taste of combat. But he being Cliff Cates, he looks to his right, he sees three or four of his men over there, uh, he stumbles over there through machine gun fire and he's got a nasty, uh, you know, lump on his head from where a bullet hit his helmet. And one of his men starts pouring wine on it and Cliff tells him, don't pour it on my head. Give me a drink. So <laughs> he <laughs> takes a big heart, swallow a wine and picks up an abandoned French rifle and says, come on boys, let's go. 20 guys go in and take the village basically. Uh, and then through the night, uh, reinforcements trickle in, uh, to help them.
1: But they're you they're fighting Bellow Wood for about two and a half weeks. It's really
0: yeah. It's well. It's from the time they got there, say June first, June second. It wasn't really declared free of Germans till June twenty sixth. So it was really you know three and a half weeks.
1: And you your uh, book is very uh, evocative of all of that. The dangers that they face. You, uh, the artillery shelling was constant. Uh, what, what One of the things that struck me in terms of machine guns was how all the quotes that you have of the men who were commenting, it seemed like every German had a machine gun. They were facing so many of them. Uh, yeah. But there was another threat that was more occasional uh, but could be just as deadly, and that was mustard gas.
0: Yeah, that was a really insidious uh, poison, you know, um, and – the Germans began using it in uh, 1915 against the French, uh, and it burned the skin. If you, got, if you inhaled it, it burned the lining of your lungs, um, left blisters everywhere. Uh, men died from it. Um, and uh, Cliff Cates and his company and the 78th Company, that were uh, uh, on June 13th, they'd spent the day kind of in the back lines, and they were supposed to go into Bellow Wood that night at midnight. And uh, they were under the observation of Germans in balloons who watched them kind of lolling in this this back area through the day. And at midnight, as they were lining up for chow in preparation to uh, go into the the woods that night, they just became under this deluge of high explosives and mustard gas shells. And basically, by the time it was over, about an hour or so later, Cates was writing that his company was defunct. Everybody was either dead or wounded. He, uh, He suffered burns. But they called him Lucky Cates. You Yeah, know, he took like the, the the machine gun bullet off his helmet, uh, the mustard gas. There were many instances of where uh, he should have been killed but wasn't. Um, he may, he was smart. He he went into, he actually went into the woods. Uh, pretty much attached himself to the 80th Company. But he used soap and water to to take care of his burns, and that's what needed to be done. Some of these guys panicked. They couldn't stand the gas mask they had. They ripped them off and they died in ambulances on the way to the hospital. It was a horrible night.
1: Yeah, one of the things uh, you you mentioned about the effects of the gas, you talk about how uh, oily mustard gas is, and how even if they survived the shelling, it soaked into their clothing. That was one of the uh, the uh, stories you describe in there. Is the soldier who basically ripped off his mask because he hated the fact that it you know he, he couldn't see very well out of it. It was fogging up, and he's like, I'm never going to wear that again. And even though the shelling had stopped, the gas had permeated his clothes. And yeah. so he was one of the casual. He was one of those who died uh, b- uh, before he could get treatment.
0: Yeah, and and in some instances, it was five or six or seven very very painful, horrible days later that they finally died. Uh, Fred Stockham, Gunnery Sergeant of the 96 Company, went to the aid of a, a young Marine uh, who had uh, cracked his his gas mask, I believe, and Fred gave him his own gas mask and carried him out of there. Uh, then went back into the affected area to help other people, and he wound up dying about six days later in the hospital. Uh, it just got it got in his lungs, uh, and there's no getting it out of there. Uh, but you know, it was very common, uh, really, f- after the war, uh, to read of uh, doughboys and Marines alike, you know, dying young, dying in their 30s and 40s from, uh, or even 50s, from the effects that that they had been uh, gassed. So everything you hear. Everybody knows about gas in World War I. It's true.
1: Um, so, yeah. Okay. But Cates, as you mentioned, as you uh, have already uh, said, you know, he survives this, obviously. He survives relatively unscathed compared to so many of his comrades. And he comes out of uh, Bellowood, uh, and he ends up uh, uh, receiving uh, quite a few uh, citations for his, uh, uh, for his Valor. Oh, yeah, yeah. He,
0: he by, the, by the time the war was done, he had, you know, uh, silver stars, Navy crosses. Um, his uh, battalion commander, uh, Thomas Holcomb, put him in for a Medal of Honor. Uh, instead, uh, they gave him a distinguished service cross, which was sort of for a body of work. Mm-hmm. But uh, he certainly, like I say in the book, you know, he wasn't Sergeant Alvin York, who, who basically fought one day. And, you know, it was a very big day for him, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he captured 136 germs and all this. So it was very, you know, it's hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. But Cliff's body of work, uh, you know, was to lead the, his men in attack at Belleau Wood and at Soissons and up mm-hmm. Blancmont in October. I mean, he was always at the head. Uh they stand in uh, July 19th in the morning. They're going to assault across this huge, another another huge flat field towards the Germans and their machine guns and artillery. And they're just waiting for the French takes to come up. And he, a spent bullet, German bullet, lands in his shoulder. It's like, yeah, oh, look at me. I got the first wound, you know. It was like, of course. It's just he was a, he was a magnet for these things, but they were never mortal wounds. I and mean, he always just kind of shrugged them off. Um, but uh, that's really who he was. He was... A natural leader of men. Uh, it's something that I don't know if you can even teach. Uh, you know, a good example uh, of who Cliff was when uh, after uh, uh, at Bella Wood, uh, they selected uh, a small uh, coterie of Marines to go to, to Paris for Fourth of July parade. Um, and Cliff, of course, because of his heroism and actions, was selected. and He took 20 men with him. And they get to Paris, and all the men are flat broke because they've been in at Bella wood for a month and haven't gotten paid. But Cliff had saved his money, and he doled out uh, his money about eighty francs apiece, which is about nine dollars apiece, so the bo- to each of the men, so they could go to Paris and you know get a meal and a bottle of wine or whatever. So and that he even said, you know, boy, you know, they they follow me anywhere after that. But he knew instinctively that that you got to take care of your men. He was always talking about his men, his men. Uh, at uh, Samuel, he, uh, it's the only battle he didn't participate in because they, they began a, a uh, routine of uh, picking 10% of the company, about 20, 25 men, and leaving them behind uh, so that when the battle was over, they could form the nucleus of a new company. That's how optimistic they were about you know, their casualties at that point. Mm-hmm. And so Cliff was one of those left behind, but he was so worried about his men, he went up to the line uh, the first night they were in just to check on them, see if they're okay. They came back a couple of days later after uh, a, more of an ambush skirmish than a real uh, live fight, but there were deaths. There were wounded people, uh, and he rousted up a great feed. So when they came off the line, uh, they had a they had a barrel of wine, they had food. This is a guy who uh, was, uh, like I say, a great leader, a great combat leader.
1: Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, though he didn't, he doesn't just serve in Wood. He also serves at Soissons. He. Uh, distinguishes himself there as well. He goes from being second lieutenant to first lieutenant during this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as soon,
0: well, like, like I mentioned earlier, it was this great counteroffensive, and the first uh, division and, and Moroccans and the and three regiments of the second division made great progress on the first day, July 18th of 1918, uh, moving basically about five miles east through the German lines, which in World War One terms was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there's an Onion uh, article. One of the world histories, the headline was something like, you know, 400,000 killed to move six inches, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so that's, that's really what you think about when you think World War One. So five miles was great. Mm-hmm. But the 6th Regiment then on the 19th was to take over the same sector that the, their compadres had the day before. But now the Germans have brought up reinforcements, artillery, there's sausage balloons, you know, uh, looking at them to spot for artillery, there are planes so they had an advance that lasted 45 minutes to an hour, basically, uh, people just getting slaughtered left and right. The Marines, uh, they basically all had to go to ground. Uh, but the, the title of the book comes from uh, something that uh, Cliff had written during that. He uh, he had to go to ground, too. But at the same time, he was a man of action. He's antsy. He wants to know what the situation is. He's afraid that the Germans are going to counterattack. So he goes bopping around the field, uh, taking pot shots. Uh, people are shooting at him. Uh, But he wanted to see the disposition of the forces. 1030 in the morning, he came back and wrote a memo basically saying, I have, you know, 20 men here from five different companies. Uh, We're surrounded. We're taking artillery shells, machine guns. And he he signed it off by saying, I will hold. (laughs) (laughs) So I know it wasn't just bravado. He was ready to fight to the end. Uh, And the end, it just turned into a long, hot day. Uh, The Germans did not make an advance. And the, the 6th Regiment was relieved. Uh, when darkness fell, but, uh, it was, it was, uh, a terrible day for the 6th Regiment and, uh, the gains were not worth it.
1: He also, at, at that point, uh, though more uh, broadly speaking, the war has really turned. He, uh, the, uh, company is deployed to, uh, the front lines in the, at the, uh, peak of, the Michael, uh, of Operation Michael, which was the massive 1918 German offensive. And by July, that offensive has pretty much petered out. The, it, it was really the last throw of the, of the uh, German army. And at that point, the, you start to see these uh, counterattacks, which really begin to affect the sort of, 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 of territorial gains that hadn't really been seen on the Western Front in nearly four years. Well, they called the Battle of Soissons. They call it the Turning of the tide, for sure. Um, it's it, it,
0: with the, the advance of J- uh, July 18th, and even a minimal advance of the 19th, uh, the Germans began pulling out of that pocket below Soissons, and that was the last time they the, that was the last time they they moved forward. I mean, that was it. From from that point on, they were retreating back to Germany, basically. So it became. Uh, a, a matter really of uh, almost rear guard actions. They were trying to hold out to get uh, the best terms they could of any peace that was going to come along. Uh, people were thinking, maybe this will be over in, you know, summer of 19. Um, people were really thinking that way because it was just, they put up a, a great uh, stiff defense, even as they were strategically withdrawing towards the fatherland. Um, but it's true. All along the line, uh, better gains would being made by the Allies from north to south including uh, for Cliff Cates uh, at Blanc-Mont, um, was a, was the, it was a part of uh, this structure of heights above uh, Reims uh, where the French had attacked for years uh, and lost hundreds of thousands of men. Finally, uh, Fernand Folk, the, uh, the marshal of the, the Allies, asked for uh, four American divisions to help try to break through uh, and instead Pershing sent him too. He sent him the 2nd Division and the untried 36th Division. But Cliff Cates uh, was first in line with his 96th company on the morning of October 3rd, went up this long, arching, I'd say it's about a mile, mile and a half long, it's just this long elevation, heavily fortified wire redoubts, artillery, machine guns, um, and got to the top and basically found themselves kind of cut off. The 5th Marines were following them, um, and their left was up in the air because uh, the French weren't able to advance on the left. So it was a very busy time for Cliff Gates. He was directing tra- tanks to come up uh, to uh, beat off uh, counterattacks on his left. Uh, nobody really knew what the situation was ahead of them. and uh, But that was another great victory. Uh, actually, it uh, was called, I think, Henry Mangin, uh, the French general, called it, the key victory of
1: 1918. And a little more than a month later, the Germans uh, they, uh, get the armistice. They, uh, you begin, the, the fighting comes to an end. Uh, they're in the period of peace. Uh, what does, uh, uh, where do, where does the uh, 96th company then go? Well, the 96th
0: company uh, and the, the Marines in general, I think they, they picked six Uh, divisions to occupy uh, the bridgehead in the Cologne area, Koblenz area. So they started marching uh, about a week after the armistice. They started marching towards Germany, through Luxembourg and then into Germany itself. They stopped to urinate in the Rhine as uh, (laughs) Churchill famous would do 45 or whatever years later. Uh, And then they just basically took up occupation duty. Each company was basically assigned a, a village and it was a boring time, but uh, two to form, the Marines didn't let their men get fat and sassy. They, they worked them harder than they ever had in their lives, mm-hmm. knowing that idle hands are the devil's tools, right? So mm-hmm. uh, they, they've occupied that area until uh, June. But in the meantime, uh, Cliff was uh, picked to be uh, part of a composite company. It was a very honorary uh, deal where they went and accompanied Percy on his grand marches through London and Paris and this throughout the spring of 1919. Um, and so he was like a, a captain, say, of a of what would have been maybe a small, small company of men uh, who'd served with a uh, distinction in World War I. Um, and then, uh, in uh, the summer of 1919, finally, uh, I believe it was August, uh, the 96 company finally rotated home. And uh, Cliff didn't know what he was going to do he's he you know he'd had a fantastic career uh but he wasn't really thinking about staying in the marine corps he was thinking more like i'll go back and hang up a shingle in knoxville or memphis or whatever and become a lawyer but uh
1: just to put in there is that we've been talking about this you know very uh you know this very dramatic period of his life it's really been only a little more than two years Oh, yeah, yeah. We're we're talking about a a, a young man who's still in his mid-20s for whom, as it would be for many millions of of American men, this could have been just a a period of his life uh, from which he would move on. That's how, as as you present, that's how he's sort of thinking about it at that
0: point. Yeah, he was was 25 years old. And 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 one of the interesting thing about uh, Cliff Cates is I actually put a little vignette or a little, I don't know, counterstroke in the book. You know, you also get the lost generation stuff with the, with all the, you know, the, the, that generation of English, American, whatever, who fought in world war one, uh, sent great sentimentality, bitterness, uh, think of a book like company K or through the wheat on the American side. Um, cliff Cates didn't display any sort of post-traumatic stress or anything from that. Uh, it was something that, uh, I don't think even occurred to him. He just loved the work. He and, uh, he was sorry about uh, losing so many men in the company, as he did, and he set out, when he finally did, uh, make a career in the in the Marines. He, he, he told himself he's never going to let that happen to any men uh, he's leading again. He just thought they didn't really have tactics. They said their only tactic was to get up and go in World War I. Yeah.
1: Um
0: Anyway, so they, they disbanded the 96 company for good forever at Quantico, uh, I think in mid-August 1919. And Cliff uh, was going to resign and just, you know, go back to Memphis, whatever he's going to do. Uh, but he's, he happened to be strolling across Quantico, and uh, he saw George Barnett, the commandant, coming towards him. And he said before he could hide, uh, Barnett had uh, kind of sort of buttonholed him and said, young man, I hear you're you're planning on uh, resigning. And he said, yeah. Cliff said, yeah. And Barnett told him, look, well, if you just uh, just give it give it a few weeks to think about it, okay, this kind of thing. And so – it, that's how highly he was regarded, even a 25-year-old, barely even a captain. He's a captain by the time the, the war ended, but not by much. He'd actually been leading the unit as a second lieutenant. And wound up um, staying with the Corps. Uh, he served as an assistant for Barnett. Um, he, he recruited, um, and uh, he did a couple of years in China uh, with the Marine legation there. And then when war broke out, uh, Thomas Holcomb, uh, his, his battalion commander in World War One was by then Commandant. And he offered Cates, or gave Cates, I don't know if they really offer it, uh, Commander of the uh, 1st Marine Regiment, and uh, off they went to Guadalcanal. And that's a famous battle. The...
1: Uh Anecdote that you describe in there that really stands out for me is uh, the one about the uh, Japanese sub and the shelling. <laughs> so it's so classic. I mean, Cliff Cates, when there was a, a
0: German plane flying over the lines, he'd pull out his forty-five and shoot at it. I mean, this is what he was renowned for, and he swears to God, he swears to God, he saw the the fabric fly on one plane. He almost brought it down. It's west zone And so they get to uh, Guadalcanal, and there's this nasty little Japanese submarine about three miles off that's you know firing at him. And he keeps doing it. I think they called him Lousy Louie or something like that. And Cates finally just says, you know, go get that shore battery. Bring it over here and try to get that submarine. And everybody's like, what? And he's like, you know, he's like, no, do it, do it. And in more colorful language than that. And so finally they start firing at the submarine and Cates thinks they hit the fan tail. He can't be sure, but it's just typical of him. You know what? Uh, I'm not going to sit here and take a pounding by anybody. I'm going to give some back, you know. And as you point out, the sub didn't return. (laughs) No, no, it did not return. That was it for Lucky Louie or whatever his name was. Lousy Louie. So, yeah. Um, And then uh, Cliff went on to command the uh, uh, 4th Marine Division at Iwo Jima, where he really could not really uh, harness the casualties that were suffered there. It was just such a horrible place. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, he was... His attitude about war and his, uh, how he continued to lead his men was forged in World War I. Um, but uh, he, uh, yeah, Time Magazine, when he, he, uh, he became commandant in 1949, I believe, or 47, and Time Magazine, when he finally retired, said you know, simply he liked the work. And that's who Cliff Cates was. He was, just, you know, he was a Marine, and he just loved uh, the work that he was doing.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh,
0: sort of thinking about a book, uh, World War One again, uh, about uh, several companies and the horrible experience they had, American companies uh, from the uh, 20th Division. Sort of just
1: thinking about it right now. Have you thought about uh, turning to doing that biography of uh, Clifton Cates? Um, you know... Uh, when I
0: Penguin uh, obtained the book, and I was explaining what had happened to my editor, and he was sort of like, well, I don't think we want a full full bio.
1: Okay.
0: I think the dramatic stuff uh, is World War I. Um And if you want to do more of a study of command, I think, uh, kind of thing, which is a little beyond my ken, you could uh, take a look at Kate's in World War Two. There's certainly enough material in letters that I never even really saw if you want to flesh it out. But I don't really think I want to do that.
1: Well, Jim, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thanks for uh, speaking to us today about your uh, study of uh, Clifton Cates and World War One. And I hope you have a wonderful day.